0: You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 011, with Matthias Burcher, co-founder and partner of All Mountain Capital. This episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank and Swiss Financial Services.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager Niels Kostrup-Larsen.
0: Welcome to another episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I really do appreciate it. On today's show, I'm talking to Matthias Burkow, co-founder and partner of All Mountain Capital. All Mountain Capital is a Swiss-based asset management firm and is a spin-off of Horizon 21 back in 2010. They also won the Investor's Choice European Hedge Fund Awards in 2012 in the category of Emerging Managed Futures Fund. For those of you who are new to the show, I just want to let you know that you can find all of the show notes, including a full transcript of today's episode, on the toptradersunplugged.com website. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Matthias, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. I really appreciate it.
2: Well, Niels, uh, let me thank you first uh, to have this conversation with me tonight. I think it's actually really a great idea of yours to do this podcast series. It should, uh, I think, uh, certainly help uh, investors in uh, gathering relevant and easy accessible information if they want to uh, invest into CTAs. So, yeah, uh, two sums up for that.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Matthias. I think it's fair to say that you belong to the newer generation of CTA firms who often come at the trading world with a deep academic background, and not like some of the old legends in our industry who often start out as a discretionary trader, kind of a seat-of-the-pants trader. So perhaps a good starting point would be for you to take us all the way back to the beginning Telling us the story about how you went from the stress free world of academia to the high tempo world of global finance, and as well as also the transition from being an employee early on in your career to now being an entrepreneur. Sort of what inspired you to make all these leaps, and, and how has All Mountain evolved since its, its inception?
2: Right, I mean, uh, your assessment is certainly correct. Uh, So uh, as a short introduction to myself, I uh, studied economics at the ACC de Lausanne and at the Universidad de Carlos III de Madrid. And uh, after having finished my studies, I first went into uh, strategy consulting working for McKinsey a couple of years. During this time, my wife was in uh, the high yield business and I gradually uh, discovered that finance is actually way uh, more interesting than they teach you in the college classroom. <laughs> uh, finance actually gripped me to the point where I uh, decided to do a PhD in quantitative finance, okay. in evolutionary finance more specifically. And I did so at the University of Zurich uh, with Professor Hens. And during this time, I also worked as a researcher at the Zurich Cantonal Bank. Now, while doing my Ph.D., I had the dream, no, the vision that I really wanted to go into active, institutionalized, professional trading. And so I was uh, totally happy when uh, Horizon 21 made me an offer after my Ph.D. Uh, They actually uh, hired me to build together with my business partner today at uh, All Mountain Capital, Tillman Keys. So they uh, hired us to build their systematic trading within their uh, single hedge fund unit. Okay. So we did that and in 2010 we had the opportunity to uh, do a spin-off from Horizon 21. And we of course jumped at this opportunity. So uh, we founded our uh, company All Mountain Capital in 2010. And uh, launched our program and trading it ever since. And yeah, today uh, I'm happy to uh, uh, talk to you about that.
0: Exactly. And how long time did it take for you and, and Tillman to, to build the program? And, and, and how did you come up with the initial ideas? Because you were obviously coming straight from academia. And, and, and I'm guessing at this time probably didn't have much real trading experience?
2: Uh, that's uh, correct for me. Uh, Tillman already had uh, a lot of real tra- trading experience. I had a lot of uh, background uh, in uh, system development because part of my thesis was actually about uh, creating uh, profitable trading systems with a technique called genetic programming and then a parse tree evolution. This is a proprietary technique that I developed during this PhD. So I was really deeply into model development already. It was also one of the criteria why I got hired uh, by Horizon 21. Tillman had a lot of uh, actual trading experience already. So uh, we teamed up and uh, immediately uh, developed a chemistry for working together. Started uh, after some other strategies that we developed in uh, in more than single stock equities, we uh, quite quickly uh, in 2006 started uh, our fo- uh, to focus on developing a CTA strategy, and in uh, about mid 2007 the strategy was. Uh, ripe was uh, progressed to the point where we were uh, fully confident to trade it in the market and so we st- started trading uh, our program already in 2007 July 2007
0: and 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 at that time did you look at any other CTAs um, trading uh, in 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 our industry did you look at any of them to kind of have a sense for what they were doing and where you wanted to be different or was it really just based on on sort of the research and experiences that you had from, from your own? Uh,
2: no, no, absolutely. I mean, we clearly uh, were aware of the traditional uh, ways uh, CTAs are built or were built, uh, time series, uh, moving averages, uh, volatility breakouts, all that. And we were also conscious Already at this time, that we needed to have an edge, we needed to differentiate ourselves. That was clear from the beginning, and we had a, a, quite a good intuition how we wanted to be different. So uh, that was uh, essentially our starting ground.
0: Interesting, and and perhaps you could give me a brief overview of the program you run today, just sort of when it started and and how much. Uh, AUM you have uh, in the program. So uh,
2: we, as I mentioned, we started in uh, July two thousand seven, and we currently manage uh, sixty million U.S. dollars.
0: Excellent, fantastic. Well, before we jump into the the detail of the program, I just wanted to sort of jump to a slightly different um, part, and that's a little bit about uh, you know your company and and how you've organized it. Um, clearly today. There is uh, a lot of technology available. There are a lot of firms today that offer um, services that uh, allows uh, smaller firms to uh, to outsource. How have you gone about uh, dividing between what to keep internal and what to outsource? How have you done that?
2: Right, Uh, you know, uh, Anil's coming from this uh, strategy consulting background. For me, this was of course an exciting uh, challenge. Uh, to build their own uh, mm-hmm. company. And we had from the start a very clear view what segment in the value chain we wanted to occupy. So where we wanted to focus on and this is clearly research, it's trading and it's client activities. All the rest, we uh, we designed our firm to outsource to high quality specialized partners. We uh, it in uh, the whole Product management, uh, be it in the IT part, uh, let's say the IT infrastructure part. Today we have, uh, of course, this was not up and running from the start, but today we have uh, servers on three uh, continents, uh, fully encrypted, uh, etc., etc., all whistles and bells, and this, of course, you cannot achieve uh, in a let's say in a new company with limited resources you need to rely on a strong partnership with external parties and so this was our clear strategic focus from the start to focus on our segment in the value chain and outsource everything else and you know Niels, uh, you've been a- around uh, this industry uh, for quite some time and until about 10 years ago it would not have been even possible to do it the way we do it today because the the, interface, the electronic interfaces were not in place so today uh this is the case it wasn't the case in 2010 and i think it's it's totally crucial that the young company uh makes all the leverage it gets uh, from uh, this uh situation
0: yeah no i i agree and i think almost in a sense it's like Smaller, newer companies have a slightly com- competitive edge because I do see that some of the the larger, very well-established firms that has been around for a long time do carry some quite heavy infrastructure simply because their systems. Uh, were built at a different time when technology was not as available as it is today. So, so I agree with you. You can you can get a lot done with with um, with smart thinking and and a good strategy. So, in terms of the uh, the program itself, do you have any um, target or optimal size that you think you're uh, you're striving towards?
2: I think uh, it's we don't have real uh, limitations in terms of how much we can trade. Uh, we consciously trade only the most liquid uh futures globally, so uh this gives us uh no limitations in the foreseeable future.
0: Great Now you mentioned the program started in two thousand and seven. You obviously took it as a spin off in two thousand and ten formed all Mountain capital that's of in many ways that's an interesting period to to start a new firm um clearly 2008 was a great year for the industry and uh and I'm sure you benefited from that as well but come 2009 just before you go on of your own um mar- the market environment has been somewhat different for sure uh, how do you from a really from a top down view just looking at your track record your expectations to the system itself how do you look at those two periods, mm-hmm. sort of before 2009, after 2009?
2: So first of all, I, uh, I can confirm what you said. We had an excellent uh, 2008, 7 was already good, 8 was uh, very good, 9 not so good. Uh, 10 was very good again. 11 was uh, comparatively to the industry excellent, and I, I think we can talk about the reasons why that was the case a bit later. Uh, in 2012, sure. we suffered with everybody else. Uh, 2013 was dull. Uh, so uh, uh, let me give or let me share with you my view why this was the case. So I, I like to sure. segment these. Uh, period uh, 2007 until 2014 where we stand now into some uh, periods into some uh, regimes uh, that have different characteristics and where I think I can uh, uh, see some reasons why these uh, periods have been different. So, 2007 was uh, the typical bull market, 2008 the typical bear market, so nothing new here. Uh, Central banks were uh, accommodating, uh, helping, uh, so uh, we saw the recovery in 2009, until here was nothing different, in my view, from other uh, bull bear markets before. Now, uh, into 2011, I think we saw a discrepancy between the behavior of the Fed on the one side who was already very accommodating and the European Central Bank who was not that much accommodating. So we saw a certain discrepancy in the behavior of the two major uh, central banks. Now in 2011, in in summer 2011, with the the crisis, uh, the debt crisis, the whole behavior pattern of the European Central Bank has changed. Before they were rather, let's say, behaving in the... Uh, the wake of the the German Bundesbank. So the rather uh, price stability was very important and this has dramatically changed in 2011. So from autumn 2011 on what you see is that all major central banks are behaving in a streamlined way and what it means, it's like easing a rat race to the bottom. So the Fed is easing, the European Central Bank starts uh, being very accommodating in uh, 2011 and the Japanese uh, Central Bank in 2012. So now all major central banks are doing the same thing, which totally and fully killed volatility, uh, especially since uh, autumn 2011. Already before, uh, from 2009 till 2011, you saw uh, volatility decreasing, but still there were some uh, resistant uh, pockets of resistance of volatility because not everything was streamlined. This changed in 2011, and ever since, volatility has essentially evaporated from the from the system and this is of course uh, not a nice environment for CTAs and uh, you can see it with uh, the performance figures of all uh, uh, or of of many uh, CTAs out there. Now this said, I also know that uh, the dual volatility state will not go on forever and we have convincing evidence from many studies. I uh, uh, recently heard about a study that goes back as far as 800 years, analyzing price trends. And they clearly show that you have these periods of dual performance of Trendless periods, but trends always come back. So there will be a future for CTAs, and uh, the question is how long it takes until uh, we get to this uh, pickup of volatility. And uh, here I am not the prophet; I can I cannot tell.
0: Well, absolutely. I think you're referring to the uh, study from Larry Haidt and uh, and ISAM, exactly. uh, which uh, which which is obviously very interesting and and great to see that. That these firms uh, are able to go back uh, all these years, these centuries, really, to uh, to get data and and in fact that the data confirms what I think uh, uh, at least the practitioners of the CTA strategies believe, namely that trends will always be there. And uh, but it doesn't mean that you make money every year. So um, so yeah, no, very interesting indeed. Thank you so much for 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 sharing that. Now, when you look at your own track record. Li- in order to set the stage mm-hmm. before we jump mm-hmm. and talk in talk about the the program itself is there any um different periods different stages of the track record meaning have there been any major uh, discoveries or upgrades to the system uh that people should be aware of when they look at the the uh, track record what i mean by that is that if you look at someone who's been around for 20 years you can be sure that the models they trade today are not the models they traded when they first started out. So I'm just trying to set the stage here to find out whether you have uh, evolved the uh, the model a lot before we talk about the model mm-hmm. itself.
2: I think it's a super relevant uh, question. Uh, the nature of our model has not changed. This said, and we can talk later about uh, the reasons for that, I think we believe a lot in robustness. However, there have been been a lot of uh, different uh, uh, steps and uh, measures uh, have been taken, a lot of research effort has gone into many aspects of how we trade for example, the portfolio composition has clearly become better the risk management has improved the Efficiency of execution has been improved. Uh, we have now uh, almost fully automated all processes. These kind of uh, things uh, have uh, dramatically improved, of course. But we strongly believe that if we uh, commit ourselves to be a medium-term uh, trend follower, we should stay a medium-term Trend following and not start uh, trading uh, intraday patterns or this kind of uh, deviations and uh, allow for style drift in the end.
0: Sure. No, makes sense. Now, the trading program itself. Maybe you could explain in your own words how you've structured the program and why you've designed it in the way you have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there a particular philosophy behind it? etc, etc. Mm-hmm. But just, just in your own words how how you best describe sure. what you do.
2: Sure. So our trading program has essentially two modules. The backbone module is a medium term trend following module and uh, there is a second module that kicks in situatively that, which is a uh, Uh, mean reversion module that essentially protects the the invested capital if you see a strong volatility increase against the trend. So these are our uh, two models, core models, uh, modules of our uh, program. Now let me uh, talk a bit about the trend following module. Sure. Now uh, maybe a good a good start uh, to talk about is to look at how a typical uh, trend-following model would look like. It's, uh, it will uh, consider time uh, series information, have this moving average crossovers, this volatility breakouts, and create a portfolio bottom-up. So it's time series information and uh, uh, a bottom-up creation of the uh, portfolio according to when these uh, trading signals happen. So we take a different approach here. uh, Based on our quantitative uh, background, we essentially try to uh, rank the markets in our universe and then Mm -hmm. pick the best trends, the, the qualitatively best trends and selectively Uh, combine these best trends into a portfolio that will not encompass all uh, uh, markets, of course. It will typically have 10 to 20 positions. So we combine them into a portfolio by achieving a second goal or trying to achieve a second goal, which is uh, optimal diversification of the portfolio uh, positions picked. So we uh, strive to have selective portfolio of not very many positions essentially picking the best trends out there and combining them into the portfolio in a way that uh, we have an optimum decorrelation of these candidates.
0: So let's Break that down a bit because that that's a big mouthful for for many Absolutely. people to uh, to comprehend. So let let me just start by by sort of setting the scene a little bit. Perhaps you could mention or not individually, but perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the markets you do trade, um, how many, and so on mm. and so forth, and also the sectors sure. whether you're sort of fully diversified. Let, let's so, start sure. maybe in, in that sure. area. Sure, we
2: have uh, we, as I mentioned before, we trade all future markets uh, globally that are uh, liquid enough to trade so we uh, never want to run into any liquidity problems so uh, we uh, constantly monitor the liquidity of these markets and so at the moment we, uh, we look at about 80 to 90 markets globally we trade okay. all sectors uh, mm-hmm. equities bonds uh, meets uh, uh, metals, forex, uh, softs, uh, grains—we trade all sectors, and okay. uh, we typically will strive to have picks from all sectors at the time. You know, this will okay. be a major contributor to this diversification that I mentioned.
0: Sure. I mean, there's no doubt the sector weights plays an enormous, uh, important role in in determining performance at the mm-hmm. end of the day. So, so uh, so that that's a very important point indeed. But let's let's go back to the model itself. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned that the core is a a trend following exactly. Model. We
2: are a medium uh, term trend follower, but instead of using a moving average that will give me a signal when to enter, I will apply. One uh, econometric model to kind of create a score for each market in the whole universe at all times. Okay. So we are looking at markets cross-sectionally, and we use one model. We use one model because uh, of the in, in the end of uh, robustness reasons to come up with a score, and this score will tell us this market uh copper has a great trend right now up and uh, just making something up and, and uh, sure, sure. Uh, bonds are uh, strongly up and uh, equities are up you know so we, ha- we will have uh, uh, the same score for all markets cross-sectionally and this allows us to compare these markets, you know. So uh, this uh, this is our first step that we calculate on a daily basis so we we compare sure. all markets on a daily basis
0: but what i'm actually interested uh, matthias is just actually to take a mm-hmm. step back because i think most people listening to us mm-hmm. today is is used to think about trend following as being as you rightly say it's a crossover of two moving mm-hmm. averages it might be a price breakout of a channel where the market if it goes above the last <laughs> 50 days high it's a breakout you talk about the signal generation in a different Uh way. So I'm not sure I actually understand what you mean by, you know, a a model Mm -hmm. like that. Um, So if you can explain that a little bit more as to how does it know that copper is in a big trend if it doesn't look at the price breakout or the moving average Mm -hmm. crossover.
2: Right. And let me maybe take one step back And let me explain the motivation why we use this different approach. Sure. If you use time series signals, moving averages, uh, volatility breakouts, so you will not be able to control the amount of markets that you trade. Yeah, a signal happens when it happens and you trade it. Okay, right. so your portfolio typically will be rather uh, large. will have many positions, maybe 50 positions sure. at the time. Now, we uh, try to be more selective. We want to be invested in only in the 10 to 20 best markets at the time. Now, so we need a methodology how we can compare the trend quality at yeah. a given time cross-sectionally across all, mar- all sure. markets. So what we have developed is an econometric model that essentially scores the trend with various criteria that I won't uh, go into right now. It scores the quality of this trend for each market.
0: But just to clarify here, mm-hmm. the, the, what you need in order to make that score... Ah, it's- Is that based on anything other than the price of the market? No, it's
2: absolutely only price uh, driven. That's uh, uh, totally right. Okay. So we have a a single score for each market. And some scores will be high, some scores will be close to zero, and some scores will be very low. So the positions that have a very high score will be picked long with quite a big probability the positions that have a very low score will be picked with a quite a high probability and the scores that are close to zero are likely not to be picked.
0: Sure. And the inputs that you need, i.e., mm-hmm. the price, is that just a daily sample? So, end of day, you need to calculate this, or is it something that happens during the day as no, well? No, that's
2: right. We use open, high, low, close prices to calculate this uh, score. I think, you know, uh, your uh, calculation frequency should also be in relation with the span you're looking at. And when we want to have a uh, mo- uh, a program that has characteristics of a medium trend follower, so it does not make to se- make sense to recalculate these scores more than once uh, per day. You can do so, but the difference in this, uh score values will be so minimum that it essentially sure. has no uh, relevant impact. Sure, sure.
0: And so you get this score, and How do you, or how does the model know whether to pick the top ten or the top twenty? Is there something that dictates saying, okay, if it's above a score of seventy or below a score of thirty, just to pick uh, two numbers, we take all of those signals and we leave anything in everything in, in between alone, or? Do you set other parameters that um, sort of decides uh, the outcome of how many positions Mm -hmm. that you end up with?
2: Essentially, we have uh, several boundaries. So we want to pick a minimum amount of uh, positions to ensure a certain uh, base diversification. We want to Mm -hmm. be sure to pick in very attractive situations uh, like in 2008 more positions because there is more choice in it. And we want to make sure that while picking we don't give give too much weight to one uh, sector or one asset class so if only equities are trending today we don't want to have a portfolio that consists only in equities
0: sure okay excellent and does the model know at this stage when it brings you on a daily basis the say the top 20 markets that you should be involved in how does it go if if there is a new market coming along uh, to tomorrow that actually gets a, a score that is high enough to 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 warrant a position? How does it know how much mm-hmm. to risk in that trade? Yes,
2: so essentially what we are looking at here are thresholds that need to be breached. So uh, when you have just a, a minor change. In the relative ranking, it would not justify to replace this position because of uh, trading costs, of slippage, etc., etc. So we want to see uh, uh, a distinctive uh, outperformance of a relative score to change one market against another.
0: Okay. And when you get in a position, does it automatically mean that you have Uh, a stop loss associated with that position or do you need the model to basically kick the market you know a market out of its um you know preferred list in order to get out of that market
2: no uh uh, essentially what you're uh talking about here is our risk management approach right so uh well, more the
0: exit side. I know it, it ties into the to the overall risk management, which we probably will talk about mm-hmm. also um, mm-hmm. on top of this. I was just trying to get a feel for whether mm-hmm. you treat your positions uh, kind of individually, meaning that okay, I'm going to allocate maybe 50 basis points risk. So if you if I lose more than 50 basis points on this position, I'm out. Or whether there is a different mechanism that actually decides mm-hmm. when. Uh, you know, how much risk mm-hmm. to add. To, uh, to so advocate.
2: there are two ways how our uh, uh, um, program can lose a position. Either it's through risk management, and I would uh, count the, the stop losses as a part of risk management, or it can get mm-hmm. crowded out so it can be replaced. with okay. a better score. And this, the, let's say the, the slots, the space in the portfolio are up for this uh, asset uh, class. So it will get crowded sure. out. So two ways of, uh, of losing a positions. So so the
0: model is not really, and I guess that's what I'm sensing from, from, from our conversation, that the model really is somewhat different from a traditional trend-following model because it's not – It's not really something that would go from being long to being short in a market. It's it's really just looking at the overall universe of markets, deciding which of these opportunities should be in the portfolio at any given time. Correct, yeah. Excellent. And if we just look from an overall point of view, what does that equate to when when it comes to, say, trade duration? I mean, how long are you typically involved Mm. in in a winning trade or in a losing trade i mean mm-hmm. how does that all fit together right you so it?
2: you know in uh, after the the fact and in uh, despite the different way we uh, do uh, many things a lot of these key parameters Tend to be pretty similar to uh, typical medium-term uh, trend followers. So we have four to seven weeks on average for a winning position and losing position. Depending on the market environment, we can uh, lose it very quickly. You know. Mm. Yeah. Also, maybe uh, just uh, a a bit more of a top-down picture, you know. It's always helpful if we illustrate uh, this more technical facts with a little bit of uh, uh, market flavor. In 2007 and 2008, we had a great year like all other trend followers. 2009, we had a rather difficult uh, year like many trend followers. 2010 was very good. I think uh, a lot of other uh, trend followers had a good year. 2011 was also very good for us. And here, this is uh, clearly uh, a year where we could distinguish ourselves from uh, many of the competitors. There was the industry being down and we were uh, 14% up. Uh, Why were we up at this time? It was essentially because we were able to be ways more selective When all markets Hmm. go up, we will be up. When all markets are, uh, there is no trend in the markets like uh, 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 2012. So we we are down like uh, many of the others. If there are selective pockets of volatility that our model can discover and trade, and uh, uh, the majority of the markets is dull, Uh, has not much volatility, not much going on, but there are, and there were in uh, 2011, there were uh, some uh, very juicy uh, pockets of volatility. Our model can discover these and trade them because we are more selective. So that's uh, Mm. maybe something that uh, brings a little bit of of flavor or illustrates better uh, how our model can distinguish itself.
0: It's quite interesting because In my mind, selectivity is a two-edged sword because in a year like 2008, Mm -hmm. in a sense, a lot of markets were trending. So the more markets you get involved in, the more positions you could have, the more money you made. Yet, from what I understand, you also had a very good 2008. So how does that tie in with trading fewer markets or... Asked in another way, how many positions can your system expand to if it recognizes lots of good opportunities in many Mm -hmm. markets at the Mm -hmm. same time?
2: So uh, we will not exceed uh, 20 positions at the time. And to answer your question, why is it possible that we have a good uh, year in 2008 is simply because you allocate more risk to a given position you know, if you trade, let's say uh, three U.S. bonds with smaller risk Mm -hmm. or one U.S. bond with more risk, the Mm -hmm. the output, the performance will be the same if all go up. So this is essentially what happened, you know. We had uh, just maybe fewer bonds and uh, uh, fewer other positions than a typical trend follower, but the Individual risk budget was larger per position, which came, uh, which had the result that the the total result was very good.
0: And how does the system know to turn up the risk budget? Um, Meaning, just for for, for clarification, if you want to add a new Mm -hmm. position and it has a certain score. is it the score itself that allocates the risk? So let's say I'm using a, just mm-hmm. an example. Let's say it gets a score of 65. Does all positions with a score of 65 get the same risk allocation and maybe uh, a market coming in with a score of 75, it gets a slightly higher risk allocation? Or how do you decide you know, how much to risk in any new opportunity?
2: Mm-hmm. So uh, there are two criterias. Uh, there is the pure score, which tells us this is a a good opportunity. And then there is the Mm -hmm. diversification function in the existing portfolio. So two criteria here. And uh, it's also very important to mention that once we have picked our candidates, we will not size the positions according to the score. Score has the function to identify opportunities, but the sizing Mm -hmm. is uh, driven by risk management. It's not driven okay. by scores. Scores is more the, the the flag that waves, hey, this is an interesting uh, market to get involved. The sizing will be done by risk management. Okay,
0: interesting. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about that for sure, but in terms of performance drivers, um, if I can call mm. it that, what do you think is the key performing drivers in... in um, in your model, I mean, clearly selectivity seems to be very important, but um, are there anything else that you would say, uh, uh, you know, is part of your difference um, I, that you, you can point I mean, at? The,
2: the performance driver per se is, the, is volatility expansion in the market. And our model is able to identify uh, volatility expansion situations well mm-hmm. and uh, trade it selectively. And then we have, of course, uh, I think uh, a pretty good uh, risk management on top to kind of mitigate the risks that are associated with it. But it's very important to state and understand that in a market, in a dual market where volatility is collapsing, so you can have as good as a, a risk management as possible, you will not be able to make a system like ours profitable. You will need to trade markets differently.
0: And and so once you are in, a, again, I guess maybe for clarification, mm-hmm. when you are in a position, mm-hmm. so do you change the position size during the lifetime of the position or does that stay constant until it gets kicked out of its um, you know of, of the portfolio again
2: this is a function of risk management you know if the overall risk uh, increases the position uh, if nothing else changes uh, would would increase too if uh, risk management perceives a danger for this position it gets maybe totally cut or it gets reduced so the sizing is always a, posi- a function of risk management in our uh, model
0: very interesting trade implementation is a mm-hmm. subject that i wanted to also touch upon and that is you know uh, a little bit about how the um, you know the system actually runs how uh, how difficult or easy is it to uh, to run and and maintain and uh, because i think for a lot of people um you know this may sound like a a black box and so on and so forth um but um The reality is, of course, that people using these type of systems they they know what goes in they know what to expect to come out but but just sort of the operational side of of running a a model that um follows so many different markets and has a few different parameters. how does that work mm-hmm. in practice
2: so uh we from the start we went to great lengths to fully automate and only trade electronically. It's very important in our uh, setup, in our case. So uh, our uh, signal generation is fully automated, our stops are fully automated and we trade everything we trade electronically, algorithm based. So we, this is essentially a key ingredient to uh, running a model like ours uh, successfully over time. It mitigates a lot of risks.
0: Sure. So, does that mean that nobody needs to watch the uh, computer, or 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 what does actually happen?
2: Of course not. Uh, I think it's Totally an illusion if you think you can uh, program a system and then let it run. That would be fully not responsible uh, behavior. Uh, sure. You could never do sure. that uh, in a, a real trading uh, environments. So of course, we have always uh, monitoring is up and running. It means that uh, we don't need to intervene unless there is a hiccup somewhere. You know, it can be that somewhere an internet. Uh, outage occurs or that. There is, we, we want to trade a market and there is a market outage or market uh, feeds are not coming properly in, you know, these API feeds, for example. These yeah. kinds need to be constantly monitored. And again, here mm-hmm. you can rely on a lot of uh, technology, you know, you can get alerts sure. via email, uh, pop-ups, etc uh, etc et And uh, we fully use this uh, uh, opportunity set.
0: But I guess what you're saying is that actually the data will come in automatically. The system will mix it, make its calculation automatically and it will send any adjustment orders automatically. Nobody needs to press any buttons per se on a daily so, uh, basis.
2: This automatic uh, trade entry happens in case of stops just because it mm-hmm. n- doesn't make sense that uh, you would need to review this. However, in so. the case of portfolio adjustments, we always have this, uh, we call it 4i principle, that we uh, manually oversee uh, before the order gets executed. And uh, we verify that it's in line with the whole uh, uh, program logic.
0: Okay, so you get told every day whether there is an adjustment Correct. or not. Okay. Now, you mentioned another subject, which I'd like to talk about next, Um risk management you've 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 mentioned it and talked about it so that my understanding at least is that this is very important in the way you approach things the way you've designed things so maybe you could t- tell me how you define mm-hmm. risk and and um, what targets of risk you're looking at and and you know how you've gone about using this um, approach
2: mm-hmm. so uh, we are typically looking uh at risk as uh, the the volatility, the, the VAR budget, uh, uh, like uh, pretty much in line with the industry here. Uh, our risk management consists of three layers. We have...
0: Uh
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged.